Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The investment world is full of attempts to milk us for fees and capital. But how is it done? Simply take a humdrum product, dress it up in exciting clothes and sell the dream. Is your active fund secretly tracking an index? Who's actually paying for that champagne lunch with your financial advisor? Slick, deceptive and expensive. Today we coin a new term for this phenomenon, dreamwashing. And in today's dumb question of the week, do you need a financial advisor? Okay, let's get into it. So Roman, this week I came up with a new term, dreamwashing. And like all good ideas, it started as a pun and then I've worked backwards to define what it is. <laughs> so I'm sure you've heard of the term greenwashing, which is basically when a company with less than stellar environmental credentials concocts some sort of PR scheme to make you think, oh, they're actually really green and friendly and eco. <laughs> so dreamwashing is kind of similar. So it's when a company or a fund with less than stellar performance comes up with some fancy PR or marketing or gimmicks that make you think, hey, this is the future. <laughs> and I'm sure you've seen a lot of this in your time. Oh, yeah. I mean, marketing is the kind of smokes and mirrors that surround so many products. And it's often hard to get to the heart of the product. You know, once you get through the flim flam, there might not be anything left. So one thing I came across, which I'd not really thought about much before, was this idea of closet index trackers. So maybe let's step back and say, what is an index fund, first of all? Well, there you're simply tracking an index like the S&P 500 or maybe the FTSE 100. It's a pretty easy job to do. I say it's easy, it's not in practice. But you just buy the stocks in the index, in the proportions which are in the index, and that way your returns will match those of the index. So it might not be easy to do, but it's cheap to do, right? That's the key thing. You can do it very efficiently. If you're an institutional investor, then yeah, you can make it very cheap to track. And that in turn can be passed on to the investors. So it's cheap because it's passive. You're not having to make decisions, are you? And do lots of research as an active manager. You're just tracking what's already there. And as we've discussed many times before, the performance of index funds tends to beat in the long term the average performance of actively managed funds. But there's a class of active managers which are charging high fees, but then behind the scenes appear to be just secretly tracking the index and giving you the same performance as a cheap passive fund would. Yeah, and I think the problem really is not many people, unless they're highly motivated, will actually look at the active manager's portfolio relative to some kind of benchmark. If they did, they could see whether it's very different from that benchmark, and then they could see whether they think the tilts in the portfolio are the right ones or likely to outperform. So it's slightly confusing because why would an active fund have a benchmark? But they all do, right? Many, many do. So some of them will say, you know, if they're feeling really brave, they'll say, we're going to generate returns which are LIBOR plus five basis points. They'll just try and beat some kind of absolute return. But that's not typical, is it? No, because if there's a market crash, you don't want to lose your job because you didn't manage to generate a positive performance. So if you say, I'll beat the FTSE 100, that's my goal, then if the FTSE 100 falls 50% and you've only lost 45, then you're an absolute hero. Roman, say the line, even a squirrel could beat the FTSE 100. <laughs> <laughs> but look, the problem is there is transparency to some degree. So active managers will publish, say, the top 10 holdings. 
But then you have to rely on fairly funky measures, which a lot of people don't understand, to see whether it's got a big deviation from its benchmark. And I think active funds use the benchmark in a couple of ways, typically. One is, yeah, a gauge of performance. So am I outperforming or underperforming this index, which I've said I'm measuring myself against? And also they may use it to sort of define the investment universe they're looking at. That's right. And as an investor, what you want to know is, firstly, what are they buying? What are they trying to do? So if you know what the benchmark is, then you know they won't go completely crazy and go off piste and suddenly start buying some kind of crazy meme stocks. So if it's a global equity fund, maybe they'll use MSCI World as a benchmark. If it's an emerging market fund, they'll use some kind of MSCI EM index, perhaps, or the FTSE EM index. So this idea of closet indexing, an active fund saying they're going to do something whizzy and beat the market, but then just actually implementing a passive strategy secretly, what's in it for the active manager doing that? Well, far be it from me to be a kind of defender, an apologist for active managers, but let me outline a scenario in which this might happen. So let's say we're running a fund. At the beginning of the year, we have a big tilt, maybe. We go overweight energy. And in 2022, we do really well. But what we do then is we say, look, our goal for this year is basically done. So what we can do is just go back to the benchmark weights now that we've outperformed. Oh, so you're saying they've got so far ahead in the race that now they can just coast to the finish line. Either that or it can be a bad reason. Okay, so they could have underperformed and then they just say, look, We're just going to take the money off the table effectively and just put it into the benchmark. Although I suspect many managers wouldn't do that. So there's no kind of scenario where they're just hyper cynical and say, we're going to charge our near 1% fee for an active fund and then not employ any research analysts, (laughs) any any quants, and we're just going to track the broad benchmark secretly. Well, you know, they might say we'll have a very small deviation because we don't have much faith in our ability to beat the benchmark. Maybe it's a new manager and they have to kind of find their feet. So initially, you'll have very small deviations from the benchmark until they build up their confidence. I don't know what the reasons would be, but I can think of some valid reasons why they might hug a benchmark initially. But I think you're right. In some cases, there is something questionable going on. Because ultimately, you don't want to pay active managers high fees for something you could get for a tiny negligible fee. Because you're kind of getting the worst of both worlds there. You're getting the high fees, but you haven't even got a chance about performing, right? (laughs) So what's the point? And interestingly, regulators in Europe, in the UK, in the US, over the last sort of three to five years have become really hot on this idea of closet index trackers because it's just really bad for investors for several reasons, really. I mean, one, all the blurb about the fund is just a misrepresentation, right? If they're secretly tracking, that's not what they're saying in their marketing. Also, you're kind of buying a different risk return profile than you perhaps envisaged. Like if I'm buying an active fund, that's going to be doing something in my portfolio different to what my core S&P 500 tracker is doing. I'm buying it for doing something different, right? And also, yeah, you've got the higher fees. So those three things. But the difficulty actually, and it sounds odd, is identifying the funds that are actually closet indexing. It sounds like it should be easy, but it's not. Because, you know, as we said, allocations will change over time. So there will be periods of time when you hug the benchmark. There'll be periods of time when you deviate quite a lot from it. And if you think about it from the point of view of the active manager, sometimes your views will be high conviction. So you'll think, okay, I'm convinced that this sector, this style of investing is where it's at. 
I'm going to take a big tilt away from the benchmark as a result. Sometimes your views won't be high conviction. You know, you'll just throw your hands up in the air and say, you know, I've got no idea what's going on. (laughs) Although, you know, if you do that, then it kind of begs the question of why you're an active manager in the first place. Yeah. And if you get to that situation, your fees should drop. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So this is why I like the idea of performance fees. I know it's not popular, but if you don't outperform, you shouldn't get a fee. And a lot of funds would die if that was their fee structure, because a lot of them don't outperform. Yeah, I was looking into this. And there is a countervailing opinion here, Roman, that if you have those kind of symmetric fees where you only earn if you outperform effectively, you're incentivizing active managers to take a lot more risk than they otherwise would, right? You may as well shoot for the stars if you're not going to earn otherwise. Within a cap, you know, I mean, again, you can force people not to deviate from the benchmark by more than a certain percentage. You know, I mean, they could take more risk or they could just have skin in the game, which I think is much more important to have the goals of the fund manager aligned with those of the investors. And really, I think that's the problem here. The real problem is the way these things are incentivized. The way the fee structure works at the moment is your income as an asset manager is just the size of the pot times some percentage. So how do you maximize your return? Well, you just make the pot as big as possible. How do you do that? Well, it's marketing. Performance is part of it. Yeah, it's easier to bring in more inflows than it is to grow the pot through performance. Yeah, because, you know, you can just throw money at the problem and advertise, get somebody controversial to front up the fund and get them in front of the media. That's much easier than getting someone who can actually outperform, (laughs) to be honest. So if we're looking at our portfolio and the funds we hold and we think, hmm, are some of these actually closet indexing without me knowing it? As we said, it's hard to tell. There was a working paper from the European Securities and Markets Authority in 2020 called Closet Indexing Indicators and Investor Outcomes. And this was by Daniele, Harris and Piccini. And they came up with a methodology to try and look at the funds in Europe, the active funds, and work out how many of them are potential closet indexers. And they did it through combining a few different methods. So one was looking at the portfolio composition and one was looking at the fund performance. Now, portfolio composition looks at something called active share. So the idea here is that you've got the actual sums to work it out, is you work out the weight of the investment in the portfolio, and you subtract the weight of the investment in the benchmark, and you divide by two. So it gives you some number between zero and 100. So 100 would mean that it's got absolutely nothing to do with the benchmark. There's no overlap at all. And zero active share would mean that it was just copying the benchmark perfectly. Yeah, so it's a good measure. There are some limitations, however. Obviously, it's just a snapshot at a moment in time. As you said, what a fund's holding will change. And also, not all differences in holdings between a portfolio and the index will have the same impact on performance. Yeah, so for example, if you have Canadian stocks substituted for US stocks, the returns will be very similar. They're highly correlated. So it'll look like a big active share, but in fact, the actual performance will be almost identical. And I think it's also the case that if you were overweight a stock with the same beta as the broad benchmark, it's not going to make as much difference as if you were overweight a highly volatile stock. Yeah. I mean, if it's got a lot of idiosyncratic factors driving the stock return, 
you know, it'd be much more meaningful if you take a tilt towards that stock than just a beta one default stock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is almost the benchmark itself. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it, how it works? Yeah, so if you have Apple, it's like 4% of every index in the world, if it's global. And the main limitation here is that as far as I know, active share is reported on a voluntary basis in the EU by funds. So you can't actually look at it for most things. In the US, I think it is more of a mandatory requirement. I think a better way of doing it might be simply to look at the performance and see how highly correlated the fund is with the benchmark. Yeah, so that's the other thing they looked at in this paper, which they refer to as the tracking error. Yeah, so you do some kind of regression of returns. And if it's perfectly correlated, then you know there's something slightly incorrect going on. Yeah, so they do that where they compare the correlation of the fund and its benchmark. And they also did something where they looked at decomposing the performance of the fund into the different factors that Farmer and French referred to. Yeah, so you could regress on the factors, you could regress on just the returns. Either way, you can see what the tilts are for the portfolio. So let's get to the results then of this study. So they looked at the performance of funds in Europe from 2010 to 2018 and had a sample of just over 3,000 equity funds that were domiciled in the EU. And these are funds which were not classified as index trackers, obviously, because we're looking for the secret trackers. And they looked at funds where the management fee was more than 0.65%. So the expensive stuff. Yeah. Anything more than 0.2, I think, would be expensive. So, Roman, what did they actually find? I think this is quite shocking. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'd have expected it to be very low because I know lots of fund managers and they don't try and pull the wool over people's eyes usually. Yeah, but you don't know the dodgy ones, do you? You're self-selecting sample here. (laughs) I only knew the nice ones. Okay. So the shocking thing is that around 6 to 10% of funds seem to be closet indexing. And bear in mind that the regulator would have been pretty stringent in their criteria. So if there was benefit of doubt, then they'd have gone in favour of the fund manager, probably. So I'd expect that the actual number is probably higher than that. Yeah, and the results do seem in line with similar studies in the US and the UK. What shocks me is that they think they can get away with it. I mean, why why would you think you can get away with not doing your job, really? Well, they have got away with it up to now. And what was interesting in that paper were some of the other differences between what they termed the potential closet trackers and the funds that were actually doing an active management job. Interestingly, the potential closet indexers tend to be larger funds than the average active fund, and younger funds tend to be more active than older funds. Because you said, oh, maybe they take it easy at the beginning and hug the benchmark while they get their feet. Well, it seems to be the other way around. When a fund sets up, maybe they've got all the bright, whizzy ideas. They're all excited to get going. And then over time, it just drifts down towards the benchmark. So once you hit a billion under management, it's feet on the desk, crack out the whiskey and the cigars and hug the benchmark. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) (laughs) In some cases. But you still do see massive, really monster funds, which do have a big active share. Things like Scottish Mortgage or Fundsmith. I'm not a huge fan of Fundsmith, but at least they have a huge active share. Or ARK in the US. Or ARK, yeah. Like it or hate it, they do have a big active share. Yeah, because that's the thing, isn't it? We often talk about how active funds, in the aggregate at least, don't justify their existence. They underperform the benchmark on average. Because mathematically they have to. (laughs) Yeah, and they charge bigger fees, right? So why would you buy an active fund, particularly if there's this risk that you're just paying for the benchmark performance? 
So I think I would only do it if I could look at all the material and see what their strategy was and see that they really were making conviction bets, right? That's why you would buy an active fund. So a Scottish mortgage, for example, you can look through their reports and see the industries they're investing in and why. And it's really definitely not tracking a benchmark, That's right. is it? And I love reading them. You know, it's just well written. They're very transparent. And you can see that a lot of research goes into finding those stocks which they like. And I agree with a lot of the, what they say. That's the other way of kind of working out which ones you want to buy. Read what the managers say about their investment thesis and go for ones which you like. Now, it's interesting that the FCA has also done one of these studies, which is looking for closet indexing. So the FCA is the regulator in the UK. Yeah, the Financial Conduct Authority. And as usual, you know, these institutions are under-resourced. They don't have an easy job of it. And they found a similar thing, didn't they? Yeah, so they did a report in 2017, actually. So they were kind of ahead of the game here. They estimated that at the time, in the UK, there was £109 billion of assets under management that were in active funds that closely mirror the market, which are significantly more expensive than passive funds. That's a quote from the report. Ultimately, they ended up reviewing 84 potential closet tracker funds, and 64 of those agreed to compensate investors to the tune of £34 million and to change their marketing material. But what was interesting is they didn't name and shame the funds. <laughs> In research for this episode... We should do that. Yeah, I was looking, I was like, I want to just say, here's the list, go and look at it. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. I mean, all you need is a regression in the time series. We might as well just have a go. Make sure you get some good insurance before you do it. <laughs> and some good lawyers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe that's why they didn't do it. But I think the regulator has to be seen to be working with the fund managers. You know, if they're seen as an enemy, then it can cause all sorts of problems. So would you say closet index trackers are a good example of dreamwashing? Yeah, definitely. But you know, the fund that really got me, which in retrospect is quite amusing. So there was a Virgin Money FTSE all share tracker, which had a notoriously high fee of 1%. And it took a long time for outflows to begin for this fund. But I think now people are much more aware of the negative impact of fees on their returns and how they compound over time. They actually cut the fee in 2019 to 0.6%. But still, you're thinking this is a developed market equity fund. The fee should be like 0.1. You know, you're charging five, six times as much as you should. And I think many managers thought they could get away with it because they had for years. So there, you know, it's not even dreamwashing. It's just that people didn't realise they were dreaming. I mean, I think my takeaway from this, my rule of thumb is if you're going to pay more than, like you say, about 0.2% in fees for a fund, you should look at it really closely. Look at what it's doing. Really dig into it. And do you love it enough to pay those higher fees? Are you sure you know what it's actually doing? Yeah. Have a look at the fees and understand what it's doing. And if it's active, make really sure that you buy into the ideas behind the fund and the manager as well, of course. So another area where you do see quite a lot of this dreamwashing idea is in wealth management. So there are lots of companies set up to provide some combination of financial advice and investment advice, and often they have their own products, which they're trying to sell as well, and the fees can be really outrageous. And sometimes investors don't care. You know, they're buying it because, firstly, they don't want to have anything to do with their own money. There used to be a view that it was kind of vulgar to have anything to do with your own wealth and that it should be managed by somebody else. Or perhaps they genuinely are really scared that they'll screw it up. You know, so you're willing to completely delegate all control of your investments to someone else. Yeah, and it's weird that a lot of these wealth management companies 
the way they compete for customers, it's not really on like a promise of we're going to manage your money better necessarily or generate better performance. It's often through kind of perks, like we'll take you out to the exclusive restaurants. We'll take you to the FA Cup final. It's like stuff like that. Seen more as an exclusive club in a way than a professional services firm. So if you're at dinner with friends, you can say, oh, yes, we're with X fund manager or X wealth manager. Should we put a name in the place of the X? Oh, there are many X's. <laughs> I mean, one of the ones which are very popular in the UK is St. James's Place. Yeah, I think that's actually the largest wealth manager in the UK. It has something like £142 billion under management as of this year. And I think it's been hoovering up other wealth management businesses such that if you're a small wealth management firm, you can be kind of accepted into the St. James's Place fold in return for working with that company. So you do have a degree of autonomy. Yeah. So as I understand it, they kind of operate as independent businesses under the St. James's Place banner. Yeah. But the way it's structured is these different advisor businesses, they're only allowed to put their clients' money into St. James's Place funds. Now, a lot of people like that. St. James's Place, the way they sell it, and I did a video about this a while back, is they have active managers who work exclusively with them. So if you want that fund, the only way to buy it is through St. James's Place. And the idea is that, you know, they'll offer you what they think is best of breed. You know, they have had quite a lot of duds, it has to be said. So every year, Tilney, which is a company in the UK, they produce a report called Spot the Dog. And it's got lots of pictures of dogs throughout the report, which I absolutely love. But the banner for the report is the guide fund managers would love to ban. And what they do is they actually track the outperformance of some of the largest funds. And for example, in the 2022 report, they have a list of the top European dogs. And St. James's Place has quite a few funds in the top 20. So this is what they say about St. James's Place. The biggest beasts are from St. James's Place kennel. The group's 3 billion global equity fund continued to draw assets, even with its pawful performance record. <laughs> Do they have to put puns throughout this document? Oh, yes. <laughs> As does the £1.25 billion global fund. The group has taken steps to address performance on both funds by changing the management mix. However, costs remain among the highest in the sector and investors should expect better. Yeah, so why is this dreamwashing? Now, there was an expose in the Times in 2019 titled Champers and Safaris, the secret diary of St. James's Place advisor. Now, the title's good and <laughs> the content's good as well. So it starts off by kind of discussing the perks, effectively, that advisors were getting from St. James's Place, at least at the time, where they were getting cufflinks potentially worth over a £1,000, like 18-carat oh white gold. They were taking their advisors on cruise liner trips and safaris to Zambia and South Africa, going to see the pyramids. Now, it's a cliche in investing, isn't it, Roman, to say, where are the customers' yachts? But where are the customers' safaris? <laughs> well, I think many of the customers already have sufficient funds to go on safari. So I think that's the fundamental problem, which is all you're doing is making rich people slightly less rich by milking them for fees. And these are willing participants. Many of them realise the fees are high and they don't care. So if you look at some of the people who like St. James's Place, and there are many of them, they like the service that they receive and the cachet of the St. James's Place name. Yeah, that's exactly it. So I'll read a quote from that article. So this is the fund manager speaking. He says, at all times, it was important to keep up appearances. 
If I thought a client was particularly lucrative, I would pay for their lunch at an exclusive country house or restaurant. I took some to cricket and rugby matches. Other advisors arranged private tours of Buckingham Palace. I would send my customers magnums of champagne to keep them sweet. So this is just the perfect example of dreamwashing to me. <laughs> They're selling this exclusive lifestyle and you're paying for it, right? This is coming out of your fees. And that's the point. The fees for St. James's Place are still extremely high. Now, they say they've reformed a lot of their working practices and the things like the thousand pound gold cufflinks, that's no longer being done. And they've toned down the safaris, all of that. That's what they say. But the fees are still high even today. And the one which I really dislike is their exit fee for some of their products. So these are on some of their pension and bond products. And if you pull out your money early, you get whacked on the way out with a penalty. So in year one, you'd be charged 6% of your total investment if you withdraw. And then it tapers down by 1% per year. Now, I think that's the wrong way to approach it. I think if your services and products are really good, that's what makes them sticky. You shouldn't have to punish people for withdrawing early. Yeah, it's the uh, Hotel California of wealth management companies. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. And from what I understand, that tapering down to the 6%, 5%, 4% exit fee resets every time you make a change to your investments. And the other thing which I noticed when I was looking through their fees and charges page was that if you set up an ISA with them, which is a tax-free investment wrapper in the UK, they charge you 4.5% of your initial investment before the money's even done anything, before it's gone anywhere. <laughs> Just for the advice. Thank you so much for looking after my money. It is bizarre, isn't it? I mean, they're still in business. They're still very profitable. Yeah. So they're obviously doing something right. And I think, like you say, what they're selling is a dream. So to just give a really specific example, right now I'm looking at their ISA fund charges, a global equity fund, initial charge 5%, annual charge 1.43%. Now, Robin, how does that compare to what you think of as expensive? For global equity, you can buy that very, very cheaply. So, for example, there's an HSBC Global Index tracker, which charges 0.12% per year. You know, that's something which is completely commoditized. There should be a lot of competition for it. And if you're paying, you know, more than that... More than 10 times that. Why? (laughs) Plus a 5% entry fee, effectively. I mean, I speak to some people who say, look, people have got to make a living. You know, I don't mind paying the fees on some of this stuff. I've had people say that even about investment banks. You know, it's like a dream client. Okay, so to just wrap this up on St. James's Place, I'll finish with a quote from that 2019 article by the former advisor. He says, The beauty of all this is that customers never really understand how much they're paying. Of course, we presented everything to them, but I never really believed they knew the full impact. Over time, because of the compounding effects of these charges, we could take almost half their profits. Shocking. Now, some other examples of dreamwashing would, I think, be the meme stock phenomenon we saw, where kind of faltering companies with legacy business models, I'm thinking retailers like GameStop, cinema companies like AMC, attracted a lot of investor interest just by coming up with kind of gimmicks and schemes, which a lot of the time had nothing to do with their core business. These companies' stock prices kind of took on a life of their own, I think, and they were being bid up to crazy levels by, in a way, the dream of fighting the man, right? That was the dream that was sold at the time. But since then, companies like GameStop and AMC have tried to reposition themselves by selling this dream of being an NFT marketplace in GameStop's instance, or AMC have launched a new security with the ticker APE, which is obviously to appeal to Wall Street bets. So they're all trying to lean into this. 
and stop them just, you know, going back to being a dying cinema company. Which again is rational. You know, I mean, if your stock's hugely overpriced, what would you do? You'd sell it to people and issue more stocks if you can, which is what they were effectively doing with Ape. So the dream here would be something like sticking it to the man while making a huge profit, right? I mean, that's the real dream. I dream of that. (laughs) But the real dream here is, isn't it that you're going to be an amazing stock picker, that you can choose a stock and hugely outperform the market? I think that's the dream. The dreams of alpha. I think so, yeah. But the interesting thing is these companies have to just keep up their prominence by coming up with wackier and wackier gimmicks. So GameStop launched a partnership with FTX, the cryptocurrency platform, and then quickly wound it down. (laughs) But I like the CEO of AMC, who has just really leaned into being a meme machine. So he's, for instance, constantly on live interview streams on the internet where his webcam accidentally falls downwards and shows he's wearing no trousers. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Who'd have thought that would be... A genuinely good CEO marketing strategy. <laughs> but it, it seems worked. to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he's also done things like invitations to exclusive movie screenings with him in attendance, free tubs of popcorn, allowing small scale retail investors to ask questions on the earnings calls, which I like because it really annoyed the sort of Wall Street <laughs> analysts that they had to listen to all these questions from meme stock punters. And then maybe the sort of memeiest of all of the things they did was to purchase a 72,000 acre gold mine, or at least a share of it. And the justification for that, I mean, who knows? That was just madness. But like all dreams, I think the problem with this one was that eventually people woke up and with higher interest rates, we've seen a lot of these things collapse, these meme stocks. Yeah. For a while, it was a good way of targeting, I think, new retail investors. But there's an example of dreamwashing which targeted more sort of supposedly sophisticated, experienced or institutional investors. And I'm thinking of ESG here. This is one example of a market that's completely turned around over the course of a fairly short space of time. And I remember I noticed on Vanguard's suite of funds, which is fairly limited anyway, like a rash, you got all of these new funds appearing, which just had ESG in the title. And like you say, there was a massive bandwagon effect where almost every fund was looking for ways to rebadge as ESG. And that's where the idea of greenwashing came from. So you take a fund, you rebrand it as something which is ESG with fairly minimal changes to the composition of the fund. And suddenly you can increase the fee on the fund. And I've noticed that the fees for ESG funds do tend to be higher. Yeah, they tend to be higher. And also the reason to do it was you could keep attracting capital from maybe pension funds, for example, where they were getting picky about what they could hold because their stakeholders were saying, well, I don't want to put my money into certain types of company. So one of the big tilts for ESG funds was not to have energy funds, anything to do with oil extraction or refining or distribution. And of course, over the course of 2022, the one sector which has outperformed hugely is energy. So I think that's another reason why people have kind of gone off ESG funds, which is just the returns have been floundering, whereas they were sold as funds which actually perform in line with their parent indices. They're not that different. So you can make the world a better place and maybe even outperform. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. But the problem is when those funds are just badging an existing fund and are not actually doing anything special to make it ESG compliant, whatever that might mean. 
But surely, Michael, that would be illegal and no fund manager would do that. Well, there is a regulatory crackdown coming, (laughs) supposedly. And there was a nice example last month where the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in America, charged Goldman Sachs Asset Management for failing to follow its own policies and procedures involving ESG investments. Now, what's interesting here is that it wasn't that they breached some kind of regulatory standard around ESG. It's that they made promises, Goldman Sachs made promises in its marketing for the fund, and then kind of completely ignored them. So they ended up agreeing to pay a settlement of $4 million. But the detail's quite interesting. The settlement says, from April 2017 until June 2018, Goldman Sachs failed to have any written policies or procedures for ESG research in one of its products. And once it did establish these policies, it failed to follow them consistently prior to February 2020. So an example, Goldman Sachs promised in its literature that it would have a policy where personnel had to complete a questionnaire for every company it planned to include in this ESG fund prior to it being bought. Makes sense, right? I'm not going to buy any company for this fund without checking that it meets certain ESG criteria. The most basic thing. However, the complaint goes on. Personnel completed many of the ESG questionnaires after securities were already selected for inclusion and relied on previous ESG research, which was often conducted in a different manner than what was required in the policies. So basically, Goldman Sachs is buying what it wants for this fund and then saying, oh God, guys, can you do the questionnaire we were meant to have done? (laughs) This is odd because I'd have thought they'd put some resources aside and just make lists. You know, these things are okay, these things aren't, which everybody could share. I mean, you wouldn't have thought that would be difficult from an operational perspective. It's a bit surprising that a fund manager like GSAM fell into this hole. But isn't it just a really egregious example of people accusing ESG of box ticking? And here they weren't even bothering to tick the boxes, right? (laughs) Or fill out the form anyway, yeah. Yeah, they're just taking the money and doing what they want. But, you know, they've done this settlement all is well now. But, you know, the regulators are coming for everyone else up to these old tricks. <laughs> so I think it's a kind of combination, isn't it, this year, which has woken people up from their dream of ESG. And performance has been the kind of alarm bell, which is essentially <laughs> roused them from their ESG slumber. So what we have basically talked about through this whole episode are examples of deceptive marketing. And it's an old idea, which I've just come up with a new term of dreamwashing to badge it as. Now you might say, (laughs) oh my God, it's hypocrisy all the way down. (laughs) Now, how can you avoid getting swept up into these narratives or dreamwashed? One way to do that is to be part of a community which will tell you about the red flags and pop the dream bubble before you get fully dragged in. So to learn more about becoming part of our community, just go to pensiongraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, do you need a financial advisor? What do you think, Robin? I think many people do. You know, I think that there are good financial advisors out there. The question I'm always asked is, do you know a good one? And um, I'm always a bit stumped. And also, I think it's risky pointing people at a financial advisor because it might just not work. You know, the chemistry might not be there. They might make a mistake. Who knows? Yeah, you don't want to advise someone to use an advisor because it's still kind of advice. <laughs> advice. <That's right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it could backfire. But look, I think many people would benefit from an advisor simply because their affairs are so complex. So let's say you live in multiple countries, you've earned in multiple countries, maybe you work for a multinational where you're being moved around, 
or perhaps you've got simply a huge amount of wealth which you have to manage, it helps to have someone who's got expertise in that field, and particularly for the taxes. But I think certain things, if you've got a really straightforward situation, or you just want to have a really simple portfolio, and for most people, remember, that's sufficient, and it's going to be good enough for their lifetime savings. Well, in that case, a financial advisor won't help hugely. Or maybe, you know, they'll just have a one-off initial consultation to get you started and then maybe checkups every five, 10 years. But I think what doesn't help is milking you for fees year after year, even if they're not adding any value. You know, if they're just going to come around to your house and have a cup of tea with you and eat your biscuits, well, I mean, what value does that add? An asset allocation, you know, in terms of what to buy, they're not particularly useful there. They don't add much value, I don't think. And if they try to get you onto their platform, which makes it easier to milk you for fees, then, you know, I think that's a problem as well. Yeah, I think that's how I think about it too, is that a financial advisor, if you know a bit about investing, is probably not going to add much value just for your everyday, I'm putting money in my ISA, I'm putting money in my pension, some of it's in equity, some of it's in bonds. Like you don't need necessarily a financial advisor for that. But where they do come in useful and earn their fees is when you have a big life event that's outside your sort of normal area of expertise. And it's going to be hugely consequential. So it could be a divorce or, yeah, you're moving countries. What do I do with my investments? What's the double taxation treaty between these countries? Yeah, yeah. Those things are super technical. And it's worth having someone who hopefully knows their stuff and is covered by insurance if they give you bad <laughs> advice. <laughs> that's always a handy thing. But I think a lot of it is down to your relationship with them. It's a personal thing. You know, you've got to have someone that you trust. And two people could have the same advisor and have completely different experiences. Some people like collegiate type of advice where you say what your circumstances are, they have a suggestion, and then you collaboratively reach a conclusion about how to invest. Other people like just to be told what to do. And I think it's important to remember that in the UK, at least, there's two very different kinds of financial advice. So there are independent financial advisors who will give unbiased advice about any financial products that they're qualified to talk about. And then there are restricted advisors, which will only point you in the direction of a limited range of products, often of one specific company. So St. James's Place might be an example of one of these kind of advisors. Now, if it was me personally, I would only ever use an independent financial advisor and preferably one that charges a flat fee and not a percentage of the assets under management or something like that. Or try to force you to use their platform, which I think, you know, I don't really want. And I think my problem would be I'd be a real pain in the ass. <laughs> I can vouch for this. <laughs> <laughs> I just question every single judgment they made about what to invest in. But I doubt they'd even try to tell me about asset allocation. I think they'd just throw up their hands and just roll their eyes and say, look, do what you want. If that's the point. Everyone's unique, right? And you know about asset allocation probably more, right, than most financial advisors. But what you don't know about maybe is the tax law yeah. in Argentina or wherever you're going to have to run away to. Yeah, that's right. When we kind of do our take the money and scarper. <laughs> yeah. But look, I think everybody would benefit from some form of financial advice at some point in their lives, just to get a second opinion as well. But I think it's important to understand what you're going to get out of the relationship and what you want from the relationship before you walk into that office. 
have a list of questions which you want answered and just see if they pass that interview. And don't rush into any decisions, right? You don't have to invest there and then. Yeah. Go away, have a think about it, run it past whoever else, if you're outside your area of expertise. I think that's important. And it is a relationship. Just be aware of the fees that you pay. They may not like having that discussion, but it's very important. And the other thing is there are certain actions which you cannot take under the law without seeking financial advice first. So one example of this is you are not allowed to transfer out of a defined benefit pension scheme, which is guaranteeing you retirement income, into a defined contribution scheme where you're taking market risk effectively without taking expert financial advice first. And this is if there's more than £30,000 in the pot. And there was a huge mis-selling scandal, wasn't there, where British Steel employees were misadvised to move away from their pension fund by advisors who got some kind of fee, I believe, contingent on people moving. I believe the regulations now in the UK should more or less outlaw advisors taking commission. But really what you want is someone who's a fiduciary, who treats your money as if it was their own and really does act in your best interest. And, you know, I think, to be fair, many financial advisors do see themselves as fiduciaries and they do enter the industry to try and help people. Yeah, I think that's right. It's just sometimes hard to tell which is which. I mean, in terms of finding someone, there's a website called unbiased.co.uk, which only includes these independent financial advisors and you can sort of see testimonials and reviews. So maybe there's a place to start. Yeah, but don't ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask Romy. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.